You sending the whoop? Shit, that's all you had to say. Get away from her, you bitch. Banana. Fortune and glory, kid. Fortune and glory. You're not even interesting enough to make me sick. It's only an island if you look at it from the water. I'm your density. You think I'm gorgeous? You want to kiss? Hello, everyone, and welcome to Sending the Wolf. My name is Clark Wolf. It's nice to have you here. Thank you for joining me. Um, Today's episode is a very fun, timely, uh, exciting conversation with Rotten Tomatoes' Jacqueline Coley. Um, I love Jacqueline. She's so smart. She's one of my favorite film people. And um, she picked all the president's men, uh, which is super fun. And um, a movie that If I had seen before, I had seen a very, very long... No, I had definitely seen the movie before, but I hadn't seen it in a while. And so it was a real treat to go back and revisit it, uh, however uh, ominous that experience might have proven to be. Um, So... It's a super fun episode. You know, we're talking about all kinds of things. I I got a chance to learn about Jacqueline's history with classic cinema and um, her history with journalism, which was very cool. Um, And uh, so it's a great episode. I'm excited for you to listen to it. Um, Just as an update, Sending the Wolf is still going to be doing a live episode in Atlanta, Georgia on uh, Saturday, June 16th, 2018. And uh, that's going to be a part of the Terminus event. And I have had the opportunity to work with the Terminus event over the last handful of years. And it's it's a really special conference for um, filmmakers and people who are interested in film and games and ultimately just visual storytelling. Um, it's absolutely worth your while. And if you uh, go to the website TerminusEvent.com and buy your all-access badge using the code SEND, S-E-N-D-I-N-G, the wolf with an E, and all one word, uh, you get 30% off your badge, which includes uh, admission to see the live taping of the show. And as I've said in the past couple of weeks, we're getting really close to locking in a guest, which I'm really excited about. So that's going to be a great opportunity. Um, And I'm going to keep this intro short and sweet and let the episode sort of speak for itself. It was a great conversation, and I'm really grateful to Jacqueline. Her schedule is so busy. Um, for fitting me in. So here it is, Jacqueline Coley talking about all the president's men. Are we good? We're Are good. We, okay, we're, we're on. Rock awesome. and roll. Um, and uh, so Jacqueline, I'm so happy that you are available and yeah. we were able to, I was able to get a hold of you because uh, I've wanted to have you on the show since the beginning. Um, so this is exciting for me. Yeah, I love that you're doing this too. I just, I, I was like, this is a brilliant idea. I'm kind of almost mad. I'm like, <laughs> I should have thought of that. But it's great. It's, I especially love that it's taking, you know, the 100 greatest movies. So Yeah, great. and it's been fun too because, you know, what I, I didn't, uh, what I found sort of as I've started doing the show is just that, you know, um, 
most of the time, the people who come on, we we do like a thing, mm -hmm. but we also kind of are reexamining its placement or why it's so revered and stuff like that. And I think when, you know, it, we expand out who gets to weigh in on what classic cinema is, yeah. <laughs> which I know you, you know, yes. you know all about. Yeah, it's it's great. I love this list and it's awesome, but count the POC leads in it. Oh, my God. Yes. <laughs> and, and no female directors. Yes. And yeah. I mean, the yeah. yeah, like I mean, it's like, OK, you got Spike on there Good mm -hmm. for your effort. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I mean, there's there's always whenever you look at one of these, quote unquote, classic films lists and you think about, you know, the history of the Academy is what, 90 years deep. And we still have every year we have first. Yes. It's crazy. Yeah. It's crazy. And um, well, I wanted to ask you or start by asking you in terms of classic film specifically, is it, were, did you always sort of have an interest in, in classic film? Yeah, definitely. So my, my parents were pretty much TCM was the only thing that I think we could agree on, um, <laughs> especially my father. So my biological father actually worked in the industry oh, wow. and although my parents were divorced, you know, I think we always kind of bonded on film, you know, so, so he worked in the industry below the line. He was a driver, um, but he worked on movie sets all his life, wow. pretty much. So it was um, after the military, and it was um, it was like a good eye opening. So my dad was into things like Shane and you know John Wayne, mm -hmm. and you know I saw True Grit when I was probably like thirteen, mm -hmm. and then my mother was much more into what the classics you would think of of an African American woman in classic film. So she loved you know Imitation of Life, both the Lana Turner version and the earlier version. Mm -hmm. She loved Gone with the Wind, you know, um, and we could have hours to talk about the love slash hate relationship that the African-American community has with Gone with the Wind, but I don't have time today. Yes, yes. Um, but yeah, no, it was um, it was always a part of it. Um, my parents definitely, although my mother is very different on her movie taste than mm -hmm. I am, um, me and my dad had more of a similar thing. Like it was, it was so funny. Um, I was cleaning out a room in my dad's house and I was like, and he's got the Wizard of Oz on Blu-ray. Wow, that's great. That's yeah. great. Yeah, we just I just read uh, did the Wizard of Oz with um, my friend Bria Grant, who's an actress, and um, it's probably Wizard of Oz and Labyrinth switch for me for my favorite my favorite movie um it doesn't necessarily have to be best like my favorite and uh but rewatching the wizard of oz there's just so much that i still really love about that one and it's interesting to see how the wizard of oz is moving up and down on this list yeah so when they revamped it uh it dropped to like number 10 mm. but singing in the rain is just right up there yeah in that and, it, and it's interesting you know i guess the conclusion i came to on the podcast was singing in the Rain has, you know, um, Debbie Reynolds and it has um, uh, Gene Kelly and like it has m movie stars. Whereas I guess The Wizard of Oz is, you know, it's and it's a movie about movies. Yes. Which Hollywood loves. Hollywood <laughs> loves movies about movies. I wrote a big piece last year about La La Land, which I love mm -hmm. in the sense that I do love that it was an original musical. Yeah. But I wasn't in love with it the way Same. that everybody else was. I felt it was a good musical that could have had better um, singers and dancers in it. Um, yeah. And it would have been a great musical. Agreed. Um, but uh, I still think it was it was very well done and, and techn te technologically brilliant in a lot of ways, but I hate the way that Hollywood just loves Hollywood. Yeah. And like, I think the artist is probably the best example of Hollywood being so in love with itself mm -hmm. that it gives a movie an award that, upon further inspection, 
we've had a lot of those in the last handful of years, <laughs> yeah. I would say. Uh, yeah, and the Oscars are so tricky too. You know, they're 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 this Sunday. Are they? Yeah, this? this Sunday. I've got a full week, so I'm glad I'm getting you today. Me too. Lucky me. Um, well, and the movie that you picked uh, was is All the President's Men. Yeah. And um, so I always tell people that they can be as on brand or as off brand as they want okay. with their picks. Um, and uh, just because sometimes people, like for instance, my Hector Navarro picked Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. Okay. And, and I was kind of surprised, but then he said, oh, well, no, I have this whole animation background. And so, of course, I picked the first feature, American <laughs> feature-length animated movie. And he was like, I thought I was being so on brand. <laughs> yeah. No, and I, so on and so forth. So what what about this movie was the where you were like, I want to talk about that one? So I'll ask you, would you think that this one's on brand or off brand? I think, well, from what I know of you and your tastes, you, you appreciate and love classic cinema. And I feel like this is a really pivotal film. Um, in addition to the fact that I think a lot of the conversations that we are having in this movie, we are having currently. Yeah. And so it seemed like it did. But that being said, I know how much, how important representation in entertainment is to you. And so I didn't know if, if you would pick Spike's movie or yeah. so. So, but yeah. I think it so, makes sense. There was a temptation because that was like the first thing I was doing. And then there's some Sidney Poitier films uh -huh. on the list. And so I was like, you know, what do I want to do? And it's like, as much as I'd want to do that, Truth be known, I think the thing that I put in my identity as my core is who I am is a black woman. Mm -hmm. What I do is I'm a writer. Right. And it and it very much, to me, um, sort of like, I guess, represents who I exist in this world. Mm -hmm. I will never change anything about myself to be a black woman. I will always be a black woman. That's right. not something I can obviously adjust. But I chose to be a writer. And I, I definitely came upon it late in the game. Mm. I love Ava's story because it's kind of the way that I was. Yes. Because she didn't pick up a camera until 32. And I didn't start writing even... My, like not even I would call it professionally amateurly <laughs> I didn't start amateur writing until about 30 as far as publication and so and that's late you know most people you know at least start blogging right out of school and my mom was just like ah there's no money in that go get a job you know so I love this movie because I think it really you fall in love with writers yeah because both the fact of of the the story of how a writer gets a story I think is very yes. intriguing to me um, from a journalistic standpoint. Although I'm not a journalist in the, the Bob Woodward Bernstein sort of way, <laughs> I am a journalist in the sense that like, for me, when I really want to sit down to write about film, I don't look at it like, hey, this is what happened today in, in the entertainment world. It's like, this is the story behind what happened yeah. today. And what happened is the Watergate burglary and the story behind what happened is all the president's men. So mm -hmm. I actually feel it's very on brand yeah. because it illustrates my writing style. And then it's also a brilliantly well-written movie. I, I think people are surprised at how quickly this movie goes through its paces. Yes. It's, it's it's not a play because it doesn't come into that three-act section, but it does have a play's um, episodic nature to mm -hmm. it where each scene feels like a chapter within a longer novel. Mm -hmm. I love the way that you watch this movie and it feels like almost like a book in a lot of yeah. ways. Like it could have template plates they're like chapter two mm -hmm. or like this happened next and I, I love that about it I love the bookish nature of it and I I felt obviously it's acted well and 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 shot well but simple yes it's such so a simple. simple movie um and modern movies like spotlight which I also love post which I loved less but anytime you can really get to hard-hitting journalists doing their job I love it there's a film that doesn't get the cred that it should that Michael Keaton did called the paper oh yeah which is also in the same vein. Um, is that Ron Howard? 
I believe so. Michael Keaton, Marissa Tomei, and I'll have to think about it, yeah. but I think it is Ron Howard. And yeah, I love that film. And I love I love newsroom drama. Mm-hmm. Absolutely love newsroom drama. It's right up there with police procedurals for me. <laughs> Just give it to me more. There, there, there's, I noticed actually when I was rewatching this one, um, the scenes with the with them knocking on the doors and the doors slamming and <laughs> yes. spotlight pulled straight out yes. of, you know, which, yes. and obviously tipping its hat, you yes. know, to, to the things that came before. But before we get into to the actual writing of, I want to go back to what you said about um, about write, starting to write later. Mm-hmm. Um, what? Tell me, like, because um, I feel it's interesting for me personally. Writing is something that I did in order to get back on camera. Oh wow! Uh, and it's, I mean, it's something I always enjoyed doing, and it's something that as I get older, I'm trying to do more of. Yeah. Um, but I, w- I'm curious, like, what was it? Did you always have an interest, but as your mom said, it just like be more practical, or did it sort of develop a little later too? So it's so funny. I feel like I'm just like robbing from Ava because I just came last night. I was at the African Black Film Festival Honors. It's their award show where they honor uh, individual achievements, and they also have a competitive competition. And she had this intro video where she talked about it. She's like, you know, I, I kind of live several lives of intention and I do the same thing. It's like at first I wanted to be a lawyer mm-hmm. and then I wanted to be like a journalist, like, you know, let me actually like go and be like Woodward and Bernstein. Um, and then I ended up having a career in information technology. And that was like a whole thing where I was like, uh, I did, you know, um, project management for software companies. And, and then I came to this whole writing thing. And I don't necessarily know if writing about film mm-hmm. was my thing, but film was something that I loved and I wanted to write. And so for me, it's funny that you mentioned writing is what you did to get on camera, whereas in me, it was the opposite. <laughs> writing is what I did. And when people kept on saying, do you want to go on camera? I would have slowly cringe away <laughs> and say no, because I'm t- and like intensely awkward and, you know, and I don't want to necessarily see my my um, movements on camera. But um, yeah, I've come to learn that not a lot of people can do what we do. Mm -hmm. And you need to appreciate that you do have a talent, whether or not you particularly embrace it. Mm -hmm. Um, But writing is that thing where I, um, there was a motivational speaker I went to see and he mentioned it to me. He's just like, you're your own superhero. Mm -hmm. Like I'm Iron Man with or without the suit. Yeah. And I'm a writer no matter what else I'm doing. So I've always looked at writing as that thing that like whether I wanted to be a lawyer or a journalist mm-hmm. or even in technolo- technology when I was doing project management, through all of that I had to be able to communicate with people and get mm-hmm. them to understand my intention and try to get them maybe to influence them to my way of thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what writers do and take and sometimes take people on journeys. Mm-hmm. But if nothing else, it's to communicate an idea and an intention. Yeah. Whether it be made up or in reality. Yeah. So I think that's the that's the reason why I personally always like lean on the writing thing. And as we were just talking before the the audio tape started to roll. <laughs> The on-camera business is a finicky one. Yeah, yeah, it is. <laughs> and um, if I am Iron Man, I will always have a job if I can write. That's right. May not be lucrative, but I can <laughs> always write, and I can always get paid for writing yeah. so long as I always keep doing it. But the minute you stop doing it, that's when you stop getting paid for it. <laughs> yeah, no, it's true. And I think, um, for, by the way, you, I think you're great on camera. I watched a lot of your shows last <laughs> oh, night, thanks. and uh, and I think you look great on camera, oh, and you are great on camera. Thanks. So I hope you're going to be easier on yourself on that. <laughs> but um, you know, uh, as you were saying. Um, about, uh, oh, rats. Oh, Ava. So, you know, the thing is, I think that the narrative of what 
uh, a film person needs to be is starting to change mm. in a lot of ways. Um, but the idea that you know, you're only allowed to do it if you lived it and breathed it and and had J.J. Abrams narrative where you picked up the camera at six years old <laughs> and made super. And by the way, there's nothing wrong with J.J. Yes. Abrams or his narrative. But but that story. So I kind of I think it actually it really does. We live in such a media savvy culture now that I think it actually is pretty pretty damn awesome that people can live other lives mm -hmm. and bring that to storytelling mm -hmm. because I think the be the most for me the most well-rounded storytellers aren't people who sit uh, insulated all day every day I mean mm -hmm. yes you can be a talented talented structurally or have a great imagination but honestly it's the people who do a lot of different things and have a lot of different life mm -hmm. that that to me are are the most interesting creatives. Yes, and I feel like a lot of times with those folks who maybe do pick up the lens so early, they're they're the good watchers mm -hmm. and the good observers. So it's not that they need to live the life to write about it, but they're definitely good at picking up the things from around their lens. Yeah. So like those people are always looking at other people and be like, you would be a good character in a movie. Mm -hmm. And that's just what they do. But there's, you're right. There's various different ways to be a storyteller. Um, in in both again, talking about movies mm -hmm. and then also creating them. I love it. And as so as far as this movie goes, and we were talking about the writing a little earlier, William Goldman, yeah. um, you know, it's kind of amazing how good he is yeah. at pretty much everything. <laughs> well, because because it, it is so rare to be able to write novels and be able to write great screenplays and be able to write not great nonfiction. Yeah. And, um, and, you know, like The Princess Bride is my favorite book. Yeah. I I love that book. Um, and and yet he was able to translate that and so many other things into great screenplays. Yeah. And if you like, for instance, my buddy Stephen King, like not so good at being able to translate, you know, the two. So in, when it comes to the writing, yeah, this is a script and a screenplay that's like one of the. Yeah. And I love that the book, which I don't know if you've read it. I haven't. So the book is is meteor. Mm -hmm. It's written by journalists and it definitely has a right. journalistic aplomb to it. What I love what Goldstein brings to all the president's men is the understated emotion yes. behind everything that's happening around it. Because there is a sort of tension in this movie that is bizarre considering we already know how this is going to end. Yes. But he created that on the page because I've never read the screenplay but you can tell by the way because not to take anything away from the direction and the actors, but you can tell that it's on the page because of the conversations. Because mm -hmm. so, so much of this film is conversations. And a lot of it is just when this conversation happens. Like if they would have framed the section that you spoke of earlier with the doors being closed. Mm -hmm. That's probably something that happened throughout the course of this situation. It definitely happens throughout the course of the novel. But where... Goldman chose to put it within the narrative of the mm -hmm. film really translates unbelievably to the tension yeah. because they literally when they're sitting there with their woman sitting there um, trying to speak to these folks when they're really getting in deep it's a it's it's closer to the third act mm -hmm. you know and yes. so it's really like oh we're getting somewhere. And then to have it just be this like series of like no's. It was just great. I love that. It, and, and the it, uh, you know, it's so funny, too, because one of the other things I noticed uh, this time around were the long takes. And now that is 
I, I bring it up every now and again. Um, it's it's less common now, but it was much more common, you know, go, going back however long. Um, but these sometimes, especially like you said earlier, it's not a play. Um, but especially, you know, there are four main locations mm -hmm. and there's lots of dialogue. Yep. And it could be very easy, easy to feel like, oh, this is just people sitting around talking. Yes. And yet... I feel like the the combination of the words and the performances, but also the way that the director chose to, I mean, it's very cinematic yes. and it feels like noir to me. It does feel like noir. It does feel like you're, 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 it's a, it's a detective mystery, yes. which, um, journalism, I forget what the quote is exactly. Like it's like, it's like you're one part detective, one part storyteller. Like there's like the various sections yeah. and, and the investigative part, like this par first part of it, that detective part of it is, is very much what the film centers on obviously mm -hmm. um, but it, it does it feels like a crime drama in that respect and the, so much shadow and so much you yeah. know like creeping around and speaking in the dark and oh and the way they did the way they did deep stuff, yes which Woodward and Bernstein were advisors because again the, the one other brilliance of this film was how close in proximity the film came to the actual events yes which is also oh, very bizarre. Absolutely. I mean, Nixon resigned on August 9th, 1974, and this came out in 1976. 1976. Exactly. That was that's crazy to yes. me. And and just to think of again, rich source material because by the time Nixon resigned, to be fair, the events of the film are closer to 72, 73. Yes. Um, but it's crazy, you know, that that it was so fresh on folks's mind. I mean, Ford I think was was still no he was out of office he was out of office when this happened but it was close right. you know what i mean like we're just one president away from this oh i i there i wrote down a line it came at the very end of the movie half of the country uh, has never even heard the word watergate no one gives a shit <laughs> i just was i mean and it's like I, yeah but and it's impossible to talk about this movie on, you know, February, whatever it is, yeah. in 2018, mm -hmm. without feeling like we are having these exact conversations, yes. these exact sound bites. Yes. Like, I mean, things <laughs> that, like, I, I just, it's crazy. And, and that's the thing I think I love about it is because I hope we're in a Watergate moment because I think one thing that this film tells us is throughout every single section, everyone kept telling them that they were wrong yes. and there was no story. There was no collusion, mm -hmm. if you will. Mm -hmm. um, and these two reporters, again, Washington Post reporters, mm -hmm. had to remain steadfast in their belief and their sources and their ideas that no... There is something there. Mm -hmm. Follow the money and this will happen. I just looked this up real quick. No, Gerald Ford was still in office when wow. the film came out. He, now, granted, I think this was the election of his predecessor. He was already announced that he was not going to run. Got it. He, but he didn't leave office until 77, that, that January. So, yeah, he was still in office. That's Ford, crazy. Ford, his predecessor, was still in office when this film hit theaters and just how, you know, close to that it must have been for audiences no wonder it was hit no wonder it won awards and yeah it just I love that aspect of it yeah follow the money it's <laughs> the uh money and right. you know it's funny too because it's like 
I mean, who knows when, where we'll be in a year or two or three, but uh, what will come out. But at the end of the day, I know plenty of people who are invested in politics now think that honestly, at the end of the day, follow the money yeah. is what this is all about. Yes. I like, mean, I don't know a lot about like I'll be I was always the first one to say I don't know a lot about everything. Yeah, of course. But one thing I do know is there can't be this much smoke without fire. I mean, yeah. Yeah. So I, I'm agreeing with you. Follow the money. Well, Mueller, I, if you're listening, follow the money. He's probably already there. Bob Mueller definitely listens to my podcast. <laughs> yeah. I just want to say, uh, because it's really important. And sometimes you need to and escape. He's not, and he's not busy, right? No. He's, he's, so you got to escape and you got to take a little break every now and again. Oh, I meant to mention. Yes. Um, so Hal Holbrook. Yes. Plays. Um, what we now came to learn was Mark Fell, mm -hmm. who was Deep Throat. Yes. Woodward and Bernstein were advisors, and they actually cast Holbrook for his resemblance, even though they didn't show his face. Wow. Uh, Woodward has come out and said that. They were like, the they, they obviously his voice was important. Yes. So it wasn't, but they, they definitely were like, we're going to just show a little bit of his shadow and like a little bit of his hairline. You know what I mean? Uh -huh. And if you look at Mark Fell, there is a little bit of a striking resemblance. That's it's kind crazy. of hilarious. Yeah. That's crazy. Well, that's the benefit of having the real guys, I guess, on your on yeah, your team. Exactly. Um, so I, I wanted to also talk a little bit or bring up um, Robert Redford yes. because um, so recently, let's see, I was just talking to um, I had Louis Vertel on the show and we were talking about uh, Hollywood icons and their real life versus their like, you know, uh, their their public life. And um, Redford is somebody who's always been very like active politically. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, he's got that he's got just the perfect look to be politically active because he's so innocent mm -hmm. and like wholesome looking. Mm -hmm. um, but I thought that it was really cool. I, I thought it was just, he's very good in this movie. He really is. This is, this is my like favorite Robert Redford time. Like it, it's the, it's the Butch Cassidy yep. years. Um, he's had his obviously storied career and done, a ton of credits that everyone's going to identify for, but this is probably my favorite time for him. Um, is it a, is it, um, which is the one with him and Barbara Streisand? Is it, I you have a beautiful oh, girl Hubble, yeah, the way we were, yeah. right? The way we were like, this is my favorite Robert Redford time, but of all the films, I felt this one mm -hmm. was probably the one where he had to disappear the most. Yeah. He's playing a Republican. First of all. <laughs> yeah. Cause that was, but by, by the way, such a great gag in the movie. <laughs> yeah. The the you know I'm a Republican, me too, and then that double take. Oh. I mean, honestly, you know Bernstein at that point didn't assume because it's it's again so funny. The two guys who should have not gotten this story got this story. Absolutely, um, absolutely should have not gotten this story. Were the two guys that got this story, and yeah, his face was just like what? And of course, coming from Robert Redford, yes. the layers yes. of plenty and the meta and the me personally, I had to look it up. I didn't believe it. Yeah, and then because again, the first time I saw this I had to be like maybe 15, 16. Uh -huh. It was really early, early on. TM, TCM, some Saturday, I saw all the president's men. And this is before the internet. But I do remember like going to school and looking up before the internet was everywhere. So mm -hmm. I definitely didn't have it in my house at that point. But I do remember going to school and like looking up Bob, Red, uh, Bob Woodward and like, yeah, no, he's a Republican and still keeps his phone number listed in the DC Metro phone book. 
because you never know where you can get good tips. That's a great story. I don't know if he does it now because it's the <laughs> internet, but I remember like that was like the little anecdote for him, like next to his name. That's hilarious. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but Redford is so he is so good in this. They're both so good, and because they're both so different, mm-hmm. both characterizations, and um, both both you know, with with Dustin Hoffman, um, Dustin Hoffman is an actor who I think when you go back to this time, also you see. Uh, why he's considered to be so good mm-hmm. like Kramer versus Kramer he's he's smaller you know it's not this big showy thing and even here in you know of course he has big moments but like the intensity and the the concentration mm. that's something that I really got from him was they were they were both they were both to me it was like they were walking on ice at all times yes they were they were always trying like and when I love when they go and knock on the doors and they're just smiling yeah. and like hello <laughs> Okay. Yes. Hello. We're nice. We're friendly. Please talk to us. I did like to um, also another parallel from Spotlight because every one of these stories needs the guy who's saying we got it, which was like Mark Ruffalo in Spotlight, right. Bernstein in this one, and then the other guy saying no, we don't have it, right. and we need to get it right because I see where this could go, and that was um, Michael Keaton in Spotlight, and that's. Robert Redford in this although they were peers in this film it's still that idea of like because that's what the audience is doing yeah. we, the audience are just like well you have it right just publish it now and just run with it and it's beautiful and we're gonna get him and bring him down and like I, I do like that back and forth um, between them because again the audience knows what happens but they didn't just come with the first draft of the story and right. then be like Let's run it. Well, and that's what's so important to, I think, communicating. You know, and look, I, we live in a very different time now because so many people consider themselves journalists. Mm-hmm. So many people use that word. That word, I people, when I show up for, like, you know, entertainment-related press things and they call me a journalist, I'm like, I'm not a I'm not. Yeah. I'm I, like, film correspondent yeah, is better. I talk about things on the internet. Yeah. Like that's that's what I do. I'm yeah. not a journalist. But I do think it's important to remember and to really show that it's not as simple as just printing wild theories and the um the stakes mm-hmm. if you get it wrong. Like when when they thought they got it wrong. Yes. And and you know, unfortunately, or what I thought was a cool moment was their publisher being like, No, I stand by them yes like I I stand by what they what they say um Jason Robards character who he plays Ben Bradley at the time which is the same Ben Bradley who we see in the post mm-hmm. played by Tom Hanks we can talk about the Bradley's portrayal throughout <laughs> Washington Post because his son Ben Bradley Jr. is played by John Slattery in the post so anyway that's a whole nother thing but um his part was one of the best and I believe he got the Academy Award mm-hmm. for that one but I, I love that speech that he gave about uh, Hoover, mm-hmm. where he ran the story, and he just came back and he said, tell tell Ben Bradley I said F you. Because mm-hmm. Linda B. Johnson, um, he'd run a story saying that Linda B. Johnson was going to fire Hoover, who was the head of the FBI. Mm-hmm. Ben Bradley runs the story. Lynn Johnson reads it and then makes uh, Hoover, uh, dep- uh, makes him the FBI chief for life. And... Famously then said, you know, tell Ben Bradley I said F you, mm-hmm. you know, it's because that's what happens if you jump the gun or mm-hmm. that's what happens when you get it wrong. And then even more so, even if you get it right, there's still going to be these forces that are trying to combat them. One of my favorite scenes, though, all without question, because you brought it back to Justin Hoffman. And I had to go back to it. Him on the phone with a librarian. Yes. 
him on the phone with the librarian, I just was like, this is absolutely hilarious. And then Robert Redford coming back and being like, hey, so I just want to know what's going on with this. And go. There were so many great phone conversations that you don't get anymore right. in TV shows. Um, like when he's he's convincing, he's confusing the two people that he spoke with when Robert Redford is on the phone. I just, those are things you don't get anymore because right. in TV now they're just texting. So it's pretty hilarious. It's funny well, the the irony of the of writing taking over. Yes, <laughs> the, the yes. written word. Um, but yeah, I I yeah I think that there's they well and that's the other thing too. Honestly, it's we see very few of the other side of the conversation, which is a fun choice. Meaning like you're watching the guys speak, you're watching the guys figure it out, you're seeing it on their faces, yeah. and you don't get that other side of the phone. And you know visually it's hard to keep the audience interested it's hard to keep that compelling but I think it's a testament to um, all the pieces coming together the the acting, the, the mm -hmm. writing and the directing that you can watch on their faces, the, them learning things yeah. and, and just it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty cool yeah and powerful yeah and, and again half the movie is just them interviewing people yes let's be honest which could have gotten very boring if it wasn't for basically every actor not just Redford um, not just Hoffman, but the person alongside him, the district attorney. Yeah. Who's too busy to talk to uh, Bernstein in that office. Yes. That scene dies if he doesn't deliver in the two-minute exchange. It's great. It is great. It is great. It's um. So you saw this movie for the first time when you were a teenager. Yeah, it was early. I mean, I've seen it. I own it. Um, I have it on a digital copy. It's a great movie to put on in the background mm -hmm. when I'm doing other things. I actually do that with this and Spotlight. They're both great movies. Just really? have a, because they're so dialogue heavy yeah. that it's almost just like listening to a podcast. Yeah. Like you don't even have to like it is great to watch. Yes. But I don't need to watch it to get it. Yeah. That's a great point. I actually didn't, but it's so I'm I'm one of those people too. I always have a podcast on yeah. uh, when I'm walking around my house or doing whatever. And so, um, but yeah, it's a uh, well. And so I also wanted to talk about maybe the use of actual footage in yeah. this movie um, because it it's not as far as I, as far as I'm concerned. It's not used for irony. It feels like no. Let us set this timeline yeah. for you. Let us. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I think you know that's obviously a device. Even though it's not a period piece in the sense that it was very close to the time frame, but because it's so close, that was the other thing. I, I don't think maybe I illustrated. Recent events are honestly the worst to try to retell. Absolutely. Because people have selective memory. Yes. People have selective memory. They remember how they experienced it versus how it was reported. And so by having those realistic news or in this case, radio, uh -huh. um, listening to radio reports and things like that, to have that dated in mm -hmm. people's mind, because the, the best part about it is the things that were being talked about that were taking precedent. It's like we're not going to assign a real reporter to this because they're covering the convention. Yes. The only thing that anyone cares about or the fact that Nixon won in a landslide like nobody cares about this stupid burglary break in. It's um, the, the you know, I'll tell you, and this is my own failing as a as an American, I suppose. But um, I didn't realize Nixon was reelected yeah. when all of this was going on. Yep. I 
I, the, okay, the whole end, the last like seven <laughs> minutes of this movie, I actually had to stop and go back and was like, what did I miss? Yes. What, and, and it, it was truly, and I, I mean, I really mean it, it was truly shocking to me to see that convention and to see the inauguration. Yep. And then know that there were still years more of yes. this. Years more, well, years more, but pretty quickly. Yes. Pretty quickly. Um, guilty please started yes, coming yes, in. Yes, yes, yes. Guilty please started coming in. and, and some. And so, but yeah, no, the four more years, like that, the, this this movie has some great bookends. Do you find that this is, um, that All the President's Men is an optimistic movie? Um, no, because it's kind of, it's not even that it's optimistic movie. I would say that it's more of um it's like you got to be dogged movie. Mm. I wouldn't call it optimistic because at the end of the movie, we all know what happens and they kind of like tie it up with the epilogue, yeah. which is typed, I might add, yes. which also makes it more powerful. But they're not achieving anything in the events of the president's men. Right. They're still trying to achieve it all. And I think that's kind of cool how they leave it like that. Like we obviously, as the audience, know, know how it ended up. Yeah. But having it end with them typing, still trying to get the truth to be believed by the public, yep. even after they've had their big, quote unquote, p the, the big part of the story has been published, yep. um, I think really is more of like, it doesn't matter even if you told the truth, you still have to keep working to then get anything to achieve. Because again... Truth be known, nothing achieved from that first story. Right. That's, yeah, it's, uh, that was something that I enjoyed a lot about watching this movie because we do live in such a digital time. Watching them have to manually do so much. Yeah. The, the physicality, like it almost felt like if you went back, if you made this movie the exact same way today, it would be like, we get it. They have to touch, you know, like they're trying to make a point to us, mm -hmm. um, the contemporary audience, that there was so much more tangible stuff. But when in actuality, that's what you have to do. Like yeah. that's that's what was so cool about what I think what what these guys ultimately ended up doing was the 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 paper. Like I love that scene when Dustin Hoffman's just emptying his yes, pockets emptying and his pocket. telling yeah. the story about how he went to write in the bathroom yeah. and he drank twenty cups of coffee and he's like bouncing off the <laughs> yeah. walls. But at the same time, the physical, tangible things and that weight, that emotional weight. Like this was one of my favorite lines was, how can you keep going past the point that you don't believe it? You start all over again. Wow. Yeah. I mean, and I was just like, man, that's that. And, and I guess without being like, oh, poor them, boo hoo. It wasn't because that's not what they were. I don't believe what anybody was trying to say. What I'm what I'm getting at is that these are human beings. These yeah. are these are people who are emotionally invested in not only doing the right thing, but doing it right the first time, doing a great job. Mm -hmm. And they take their job so seriously. Yep. Um, it was it was really I felt exhausted yeah. for them, you know? Yep. You feel exhausted, you feel the attention, you feel you feel at the moments where you think the the outcome is not going to be the same. Again, it's one of those movies where it's like you know what's going to right. happen. So it's always funny to me when I'm like towards the end of it and I'm like you know, like I'm actually anxious as to what is going to occur and again that just talks to the brilliance of the filmmaking. But yeah, no. Um I just looked it up to the Watergate commission um 
was October 10th, 1972, where they established the break-in like FBI file. And Nixon was elected exactly 30 days later. Wow. So this was a story that was out there that was being literally investigated by the FBI. And he won re-election. Yeah. Handily. Yeah. <laughs> and, and as we know from that quote earlier, half the country didn't even no, know no. or didn't care to know. And, and again, at that time, this is not now where the Washington Post and the New York Times have established themselves as right. national papers. That's a great point. And people trust them for national news, not just Washington, D.C. news. One of the reasons why the New York, why the Washington Post was covering it was, yes, it involved the White House. But honestly, at the time, it was a local story because yeah. it was just a break in. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. It wasn't national. Yeah. And, and um, it wasn't national, obviously national for reporters. Um, the best part is, uh, is Bernstein before that, I'm sorry, Woodward before that was um, basically a glorified health inspector. He right. was writing stories about, you know, poor health conditions in restaurants. And weren't they about to fire him? Yeah. They, well, apparently they're about to fire both of them at one point or another, which is not uncommon with writers <laughs> and journalistic staff, especially since they were small and on staff. But, um, yeah, it's, it's, again, it's just I I do love the underdog the underdog aspect of it's like whoever heard of Woodward and Bernstein it's like well now everybody yeah <laughs> yeah well yeah don't they call them uh, Woodstein yeah I, Woodward I, and Bernstein I, yeah, I yeah, liked yeah, how the, the yeah, yeah. they you know Woodstein. he would just yell like it's like Benifer yeah he just yell Benifer and then they'd run in <laughs> and know that both of them yep uh, yeah yeah very good um is there so was there anything else about this this one in particular that stood out to you this time. Um, watching it this time, I mean, I'm not going to lie, I've seen the movie a few times. Yeah. It's one of those ones where, like, it's a movie that I've seen a bunch, so. What stood, I guess the thing that stood out to me now, because I kept thinking about it, I, again, I just think about it in our current situation, and I think about the things that wouldn't work anymore. Uh-huh. Um, one of the things that did work, even though Nixon played the same playbook that mm -hmm. is currently being played, yep. discredit, deny, say that it's fake yep. although they didn't call it fake news but that was basically it you know right. um the the thing that i think is different now is the preponderance of evidence that is needed for people to remove their political ideology is such a zero-sum game yeah like and i notice this on both sides this mm -hmm. is not these are the same people who to this day will not talk about bill clinton in mm -hmm. relation to his admitted sexual inappropriateness with women mm -hmm. in the same relationship that they will speak to certain things that have happened with the president of the United States. Does mm -hmm. that make sense? Mm -hmm. Because yeah, there's a different line, mm -hmm. but you can't get on your high horse tearing down these quote unquote sexual abusers. Mm -hmm. When we already know that your poster child has a history. Like I, I read this morning, Monica Lewinsky's op-ed that said, yeah, it was consensual. I'm putting air quotes that you can't see, but that doesn't mean that it wasn't an abuse of power. And, yeah. And so, but there are dyed-in-the-wool Democrats that will never criticize Bill Clinton because he is like God to them. Sure. And their ideology doesn't allow them to remove his faults yeah. from his actions yeah. and criticize him. I think now, in this world, I mean, it would literally take video evidence. And even then. This is the thing. Like, you know, honestly... Um, 
so I, I listen to people talk about our current situation. One of the things that gets mentioned is that so much of this was actually so much of the stuff that we know are scandalous or even law breaking um, are not done in secret. Yeah. It's like it's like tweets get sent out where you're just like, oh, my God, this person just admitted to. Yeah. And and so, the you know, I mean, I'm I, you know, I, I'm going to be completely honest. Um, uh, John John Oliver calls what's happening right now in our country stupid Watergate. Yes, I've heard and, this. Yeah, yeah. And and I couldn't agree with him more. Yeah, it because really is. At the very least, these people in all the president's men, the, you know, the members of the government who were doing what they were doing, they tried to. They were smart and they knew what they were doing, and at the very least, were like doing everything they could to cover their asses. Yes. And what's going on now? Like, you know, you're right though. It, even if it, whatever it is. Whatever it ends up being, because you were saying earlier, and I agree with you, where there's smoke, there's fire. You know, this is there. What's happening right now? There are guilty pleas. There are indictments. Yeah, this is not. But this is the thing. And exactly. The like, there are people who are maybe in the middle who this is swayed. But I'm saying to, in my full confidence, and nothing against these people, because like I said, that's why I used the Bill Clinton example to begin with. There are 40 percent. Mm-hmm. of the general population that it would take literally and it doesn't forget video evidence forget any of it because they've already seen video evidence they've already seen examples of this behavior that should be enough to show them that this is probably what happened no i mean their ideology yeah well this is the same reason why republicans would vote for someone like roy moore right you know i'm from alabama and like like that's what i'm saying yes. it's like what is the line of something happening that's being reported that will let you say there's enough preponderance of evidence for me to say, ooh, I don't care if this guy's a Republican or not. I'm going to distance myself away from this person right. because X, Y, Z. Yes. And I think the difference between then and now, there's the woman, she's like, I've been a Republican in my whole life and I'm seeing what's going on and I'm just shameful for it. That woman doesn't exist anymore. Yeah, That, that woman is gone. There that are... woman has had Twitter and social media <laughs> and the life beaten out of her. And, and that's... That's yeah, the truth. they they this movie really does go out of its way to show and and I don't know because I haven't read the book, um, but to show that the people who ended up talking really did have a crisis of conscience. They knew what was happening was wrong, mm-hmm. and there was something to be said for right and wrong. Yep. And this isn't about tribalism. This is about. Um, you know, a love of the Constitution, a love of American values, a love of ideals. Mm-hmm. And and it's OK. I mean, that's the that's the part that confuses me the most is is that, OK, if someone on your team does something wrong. Yep. Well, then, you know, that's that person on your team should be removed. But then the rest of your team is still there. Yep. Like, do you know what I'm saying? The The idea that you can't admit that some that there is any wrongdoing anywhere is just I don't fundamentally understand. Yeah, I again, they cannot remove the ideology right. from the action. And there it is. Yeah, that's it. That's all it really boils down to, and it, it's on both sides. Like I'm not trying to I hate to say that phrase now even, yeah, but you I know, know what I mean. I never like, hear both sides yeah, ever. Again, yeah, you can't you can't hear that <laughs> anymore and be like, uh, I'm not saying like that. But you know what I mean. Yeah. And I again, I've I've spoken to to, to some Democrats about about separate issues, sure. and it's, again, it's like, no, 
Yeah. <laughs> like 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 my ideology and it puts blinders up and there's reason for it because again when you're just lobbing yeah. rocks on both sides it's pretty hard for you when you like come outside the shield not to assume that it's really just a rock yeah it's so. true um well all right so uh everybody who comes on the show gets to pick a movie that's not on the list that they would add to the list. That I would add to the 100 greatest films list? Yeah. Wow. Do you have one or do you have two or three? I mean. Because we were talking earlier about how there are no female directors. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. very light on representation. and. Yeah. So let me see. If I could add, I'm probably going to pick three. Okay. And I'll pick, I'll pick one. Because it's recent and I'm in love with it. And I'm going to the Independent Spirit Awards. And I rented a very expensive dress just because I want to hopefully be there when this movie wins. Because it has been shut out all year. And that is Call Me By Your Name. Uh Uh-huh. And I hate to do that, but it's Oscars week. And I have to because I've been obsessed with this movie since I saw it at Sundance. And I've been bummed watching it get beat out all year long. Because I really do feel... It is a film that is a victim of its own circumstance, but that's a whole nother podcast for another day. (laughs) Uh, So I would put Call Me By Your Name on there for sure. Um, I would also, God, I feel bad because it's just going to be like last year and the year before, blah, blah, blah. But I would put Moonlight on there. Okay. Two LGBT movies, but that's not why I picked them. Yeah. They're just brilliant flipping movies. And then to keep it really lighthearted, I'll put my my favorite film that I can watch over and over again, um, and that's Heathers. Heathers. Yeah. I love that. Yeah, I'd put I'd put Heathers on there. I'll put Moonlight on there. And I just, oh, sucks. I added only male directors. I got to pick a I got to pick a good female director one to add. But I don't want to pick one just because it's a female director. I no, want to make sure it's like one that I love. If I wasn't going to pick Heather's, I would have picked Bridget, Bridget Jones's Diary, which I almost did. And that is directed by Sharon, who's a woman. So uh-huh. that would pick that one, too. But I love Heather's more than life. Yeah. I'm a I'm a clueless gal. Yeah. Um, honestly, yeah. I, I love clueless. I think but I think that, you know, that's something that we've sort of like really discovered or I've discovered. And however many recordings, almost 20 recordings into this thing. And what we take seriously mm-hmm. as real art or real film or real cinema is um, very specific. Yeah. Like Lewis, Lewis pointed this out and I think it's fair, you know, like w- when you have um, recognizing ordinary people, another Robert Redford movie um, or well, he directed it, um, recognizing ordinary people over a raging bull at the yeah. Oscars. Mm-hmm. And people were very upset about that. Mm-hmm. Um, but he made the point, and I think it's a rather smart one, that at the Oscars for the last decade of that, you know, when Ordinary People won, they had been not recognizing movies a lot like Raging Bull. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, what makes Raging, or I'm sorry, what makes Ordinary People not as compelling or viable as an art, as a best picture of the year? Why? Because it's a family drama? Mm-hmm. Because it's it's not like, you know, gritty and, and sexy and, and, you know, violent, essentially? Mm-hmm. Like, it's just... It, the things that we hold up are very interesting to yeah, me. Yeah, it's very subjective. And I'm doing a big, speaking of which, I'm doing a big project right now that will hopefully be out, out for the ears of people soon about the Oscars. Uh-huh. The Oscars are not meant to pick the best movie. They're meant to pick the winner of the Oscars. Mm-hmm. And that is like the tagline as I've been doing this long project that I've come to understand because there are rotten to the core movies with problematic storylines and characters that make me want to pull my hair out. 
that are Oscar award winners. Yeah. And I'm not talking about Suicide Squad for best makeup. Right. I'm talking like best picture, best actor. Yeah. These are awfuls. Like the fact that Linda Hunt won for Billy Kwan, mm-hmm. won an Oscar. I have not seen, I've not seen it. I don't know the movie. Yeah, so, uh, hold on one second, because I have to bring this one out. So. Good, I love it. Um, Hold on one second. Linda Hunt is a short-statured white woman who played an Asian man huh. in uh, The Year of Living Dangerously. Okay. And she won a Supporting Actress nomination. And what year was this? 1984. 84? This was 1984. I thought you were going to say not no. that. No. Year of Living Dangerously, she won the Academy Award in a tr- in a gender-swapped whitewash role probably one of the most racist depictions I've ever seen to every single Asian actor at that time it had to be a huge swap in the face because that is a once in a lifetime role and they literally haven't even given it to a man they've given it to a white woman you know what I mean like they haven't and and like that's that's ward worthy and it's not the role the role is great the whole point is is that you really couldn't find any oh yeah no i mean well i'm sorry okay if i may um (laughs) i just saw lawrence of arabia for the first time and uh, you know the egyptian has a print Mm -hmm. and i have always been told that that's the way you see it you see lawrence of arabia on the big screen Mm -hmm. in a theater on film if you can and so i did and um look i'm glad that i did but I'm sorry. In addition to that movie being unneedlessly long, yeah. Um, that movie is all brownface. Yeah, like all brownface. Like, what? How has this? And and again, uh, okay. The original, well, not the original. One of the first cinematic white savior tropes that we still live well, with to this day. Also, that I mean, the in addition, you're you're absolutely right. Like, <laughs> there's there are so many things about that movie that are nuts. The white savior trope, absolutely. In addition to the fact that our three main um, Middle Eastern characters are all played by like English dudes, yeah, with blue eyes. I mean, it's like, and and so I I was, and so um, you know. I'm glad I saw it. I think Lawrence of Arabia is epic to look at. There's no denying that. And for, you know, as flawed as the casting was, the performances are Are amazing. they're, They're amazing. But... Um, and I'm of the opinion that when intermission hits, movie over, we're, we're, we're done. Like that, the character arc is finished. Wait, Man, you know, all, of the, all the cinephiles listening right now, just get up in your feelings. See, it doesn't matter. This is the thing is yeah. that. Oh, I agree with you. After I posted, I put on Facebook. I didn't even put it on Twitter. I put it on Facebook for just friends, people I actually know. And I was like, so I saw it. I saw it finally. I didn't like that. I don't yeah. like this movie. I and can and, and people lost their mind. So when I look at these movies, I have to appreciate a lot of times the technological advancement yes. and what they did. Like uh, the greatest show on earth is really not a great movie. It's mm-hmm. an aw- it's awfully boring. Right. But visually and the visual effects that they did at that time were like revolutionary. Right. And I understand why people it was like you know one of the first really really big talkies yep. and like it was great. Cecil B. DeMille gets all the credit for that one, but. Um, you can't look at some of these things a different way. Even singing in the rain. Yeah. Not always the best storyline with women. Yeah. No. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. No. So I, abs- it, it, yeah. I, I just try to look at them that way. But 
That was then. Yes. And I like to give it like a 1975 rule. Uh-huh. Like after Shaft. Yeah. After a few things that have come out. Yeah. Like Billy Kwan. <laughs> That's insane. Like when you said 1984, 1984, Linda Hunt, a small statured white woman, won the Academy Award. Like this is the thing. Not only did she get cast, not only did a studio approve it, not only did that thing get printed and the makeup artists and everyone involved did their jobs and did their things. But then when it went out to the mainstream public, they were like, give it an award. Wow. And I was alive. Wow. Barely, but I was alive. Yeah, no, but hey, it counts. Yeah, I mean, I will. Yeah, that's just. Well, it's kind of like um, Breakfast at Tiffany's is, is another yes. icon, famous you example. Just, you fast forward through the week. You, re- you, you really have to. because, through. And it's so like, would you agree that Breakfast at Tiffany's, aside from that horrible thing, is a great movie? I, a, I feel like it is, but. I mean, it's not just that even. It's, it's the idea that like, well. She was a prostitute. Well, yeah, and uh, of course. Yeah, it's like the other things. He was a prostitute. Like, right. like it was all of these, and they're not horrible narratives necessarily. But it's just this idea of like, it's, you just have to look at it from a different lens. Yeah, I mean, yes, you have to look at it from a different lens. You have to appreciate for what it was, and you have to appreciate the performances. But you see why for so long these things happened yeah. because in the end, all people cared about was the end product. Yeah. It didn't matter who made it or why this person didn't get to make it or why this person didn't get cast. Yeah. It was about the end product. There, well, I'm going to throw one more thing at you before we wrap up. So um, I just did this podcast where uh, we were we were tasked with making a top ten list of uh, women in science fiction. Mm. And you know, science fiction obviously is a very broad genre. Mm. So you can you know like I know a lot of people who would who would ring ring my neck if I said that you know Star Wars was able to be in there because everybody goes it's fantasy. Uh, but you know whatever. So um, and and so on and so forth. The parameters are are wild. But um, I put uh, at number one for me was Furiosa. Okay. Number two was Selena from 28 Days Later. Okay. And then three and four were Ripley and um, uh, Sarah Connor. Okay. And the two guys who, who host the podcast, it's a top 10 podcast. You guys should listen to it. It was a great conversation. But they were really confused as to why I would sort of, oh, in fact, you know what? And I had um, Laura Dern in Jurassic Park at three, and then it was Ripley at four and Sarah Connor at five. Um, But my point is that they were very confused as to how Ripley or Sarah Connor weren't one or two. And my whole take, my whole argument was, and I do believe this, at the time that those movies came out and redefined what a female action hero could look like, um, there there was very other little stuff going on. You know, very other few few other examples to point to. But as those franchises continued, those wo- those women, their mascul- their their femininity was almost stripped away, and they were turned into men. They turned into men acting as women. That's exactly right. Except for when Ripley decided to be in her underwear for reasons. <laughs> right, for reasons. Um, but but so like, you know, and, and it's a little bit more, like from Alien, you know, Ellen Ripley just doesn't want to die. Fine, yeah. great. I, I buy it and I'm in. Um, aliens, all right, she's not super jacked yet, but you strap a machine gun on her and now she's going to fucking take everybody out. Yeah. Then by Alien 
cubed. <laughs> this is my little joke. Uh, <laughs> um, but and so on and so forth, like shaved head yeah. and like you know all the muscles and. And it was Sarah Connor, from where we leave Sarah Connor at the end of the Terminator to where we pick up with her. I know it's 10 years later, but like she's up, she's slightly optimistic or even hopeful, I think, at the yeah. end of Terminator. Yeah. And then when we see her, she is militarized. Yep. And now, again, if you have 10 years worth of Terminators coming after you, sure, you're going to get a little edgy. I, yeah. I get it. But the idea that female strength is defined by hardness. Yeah. Is very, I just don't, and and so I put them at four and five. It's not like I was like, take them off the list, not yeah. important. But like, do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. It's like how it was defined before, you have to look at it with that lens and go, yes, this was revolutionary at the time. And it's still empowering now in some ways. Yeah. But for me, someone like Furiosa or Selena or or Laura Dern in, in um, Jurassic Park, like that's to me, they're more well-rounded women. Yes. And they feel more. Yeah. And I, I don't want to open this can of worms because it's the end and we could talk again <laughs> about this one forever. But if I had to make that list now, I definitely would put Okoye on there because she was the perfect blend. And that's from Black Panther. Uh -huh. I would put her on there because she is the perfect blend of femininity coupled with a warrior. Yeah. And, and neither diminish the other. They make each other stronger. It's, Yeah. That's that's a good way to put it. I so I still haven't seen Black Panther. Get yet. out! I I let me Girl. tell. Girl, I know, but let me tell you why. Um, because cutting I'm, the tape. I know. I'm escorting I, you to the Arcolite. And, and now it's time to go. I know, but it's um I I missed the screening early, mm -hmm. and then my friends were married in Texas gotcha. uh, opening weekend, and so it's just like, but yeah. it's I'm going this week, and I can't wait. And and to be fair, the reason that um our uh, there were very we we had Tessa Thompson. Someone at, or one of the guys had Tessa Thompson from Thor Ragnarok nice. on his list, um, and, and other various Marvel and DC heroines. Um, but my version, my definition of science fiction, I guess I I didn't include superheroes. Yeah, and 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 and, and truth be known, um, I think that's a defining thing. Depends on where you go with it, right? But I'm gonna put it there because the vibrating. I, I, hey, yeah. and I I think it I think it's a great place. Excellent. All right, my love. Well, thank you. This was so much fun. This is really fun. It was a good time. And I will come back anytime, any place. Good. I'm I'm gonna hold you to that anytime. All right. <laughs> Deal. Thanks. friends that's going to do it for us today thank you so much for listening i hope you enjoyed that conversation and for the record i have since seen um black panther <laughs> and that was not an intentional i haven't seen it it just timing was crazy earlier this year but jacqueline so generously gave me a super fancy fandango gift card and she was like girl go see Black Panther. And it was funny, actually, a little anecdote, because I saw it while I was at South by Southwest in Austin at the Alamo Draft House in South Lamar. I walked out of the theater and ran into Jacqueline right there. And I said, I just went and saw Black Panther. Thank you for the gift card, um, which was very cool. So I'm glad I got a chance to run into her for that. Um, as always, there is going to be a Patreon exclusive mini for $5 
and higher monthly contributors at patreon.com slash Clark Wolf. Jacqueline is going to be back with more talking about um, the comparisons between the all the president's men and more recent fare like Spotlight and The Post. Um, so it's a really fun little episode that I think you guys will enjoy. So that's it for me today. Thank you so much for listening. As always, if you don't mind um, rating and reviewing the, uh, the podcast and subscribing, that is a huge, huge help. And until Thursday, I'll see you soon. <laughs> Thank you.